Hey friends, Chaz here. Two of my favorite things I get to do is let you know about exciting opportunities and also to tell you how to get copies of Scott's books. Well, I get to do both of those today because the first, the exciting opportunity I get to share with you about is the Taste of Northern that's happening on Monday, November 18th and Tuesday, November 19th. If you've ever participated in Northern's Taste of Northern, you know, it's a chance that we just open up our classes and let you sit in and experience what a class is like at Northern. And we'd love to have you join us on that Monday or Tuesday in November. And you can learn more and sign up at seminary.edu forward slash krtaste. Again, the place you sign up is at seminary.edu forward slash krtaste. Now, that's the exciting opportunity, but the chance that you get to get a copy of Scott's book is that I'm giving away a copy of Scott's book, the new one, Pastor Paul, to two of the people who sign up for The Taste of Northern. So if you're on the fence thinking, oh man, you know, I think that'd be kind of be cool, I hope that just pushes you over because um, this is a great resource and would love to be able to have you be one of the, the people that we give away one of those copies of Pastor Paul to. So we again, love to have you at Taste of Northern on Monday, November 18th and Tuesday, November 19th, because um, it really is so exciting the different things that God is doing at Northern. So without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about pastors as culture makers. So Scott, uh, this is a pretty exciting time for you. You just got this new book, Pastor Paul, that has come out. And this is something I know I've been following you talk about for a while, but I think it's pretty exciting to see how this book is being received and um, what I know it's blessing so many people with. And I, I guess to start, I guess, how how how's it going with this book now that this material is out into the, the world as a book? And um, what type of feedback are you getting? Well, it's a bit early for feedback, but I got a—I just got a, a, a message today from someone uh, never heard of him before, who uh, loves the book and is uh, saying thanks. And the last two weeks, I've had conferences with pastors, one in Nashville and one in Oklahoma City, and uh, the ideas are bouncing off of people, and they're really enjoying them, and we're having good conversations. So um, exactly what I was hoping would happen is happening, and that is uh, it's being picked up by pastors and being talked about by pastors. And, of course, they don't blog about pastoral books very often. They blog yeah. for the congregations. But yeah. uh, I'm hearing good things, so I'm excited about it. Yeah, well, and I, I'm glad to hear that it, it's doing well. And um, I guess – I think it would be fun to hear your side of the story of just how this book came to be. Um, what were some of the different components that you felt like this would be a valuable resource to the church and for pastors and how it came to be what it is today? Well, it started uh, in a class at Northern in my first term, first year, it probably was in the winter, uh, but it was in the first year I was teaching Paul. Letters of Paul, 
And because most of the students were pastors or working in churches, nearly, I mean, everybody in, in the seminary usually is involved in a church, is church work. So I, um, I decided that when I got to the Corinthian epistles uh, in the curriculum, in the schedule of the courses, that, uh, the topics that we would discuss in class, that I would sort of work through with the students Paul's pastoral theology in the Corinthian letters. And I thought, well, a good place to begin is 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. I wanted to avoid 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 at that time because I knew it was so uh, difficult at times to read for pastors because of all the criticisms Paul experienced, and it triggers for many pastors painful experiences. So I started with 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, and I really didn't get much beyond that. And I, in my class, I kept thinking, uh, Paul is, uh, I'm not sure he's doing all the things the best way to do them. He was sarcastic. He was uh, asking questions and answering them and answering for them and pushing pretty hard. Yeah, he does. So I, I started to work uh, at that point. I, I said to myself, I'm going to work on Paul as a pastoral theologian more. So I had a couple opportunities to talk to pastors. One time I worked on Colossians and 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that goes through chapter 7, just a few passages there. And then um, another time I was talking to pastors, I was beginning this project and I worked on pastors and friendship. Well, I was invited by a Nazarene seminary to uh, give lectures uh, Andy Johnson uh, at the Nazarene Seminary in Kansas City asked me uh, to give the lectures for his seminary. And I said I would come if I could talk about uh, Paul as a pastor. And he approved the topic. And uh, so I began to work on seven themes in Paul's pastoral theology. I felt like I could have had 30 or something. Mm -hmm. But I chose seven, and then I had an introductory chapter that developed over time as I read more into pastoral theological literature. Uh, and, and so uh, the book became what it is. And I'm, to me, it's a gift. It's my work for pastors mm. uh, to tell them that uh, I admire what they're doing, that I appreciate what they're doing. And I want to let my study of the Apostle Paul uh, somehow be a benefit to them as they pastor in their churches. It's not really a book where I tell pastors how to how to pastor so much as it is a book where I, I say this is how Paul understands the pastoral life so yeah pastoral well, something like that yeah well as a pastor I want to say thank you because I know our study together and my learning under you has deeply impacted and benefited my pastoring of other people as as well as I know so many others. So it is a gift and we're grateful for it. And I love how you, I mean, you really go for it with First Corinthians because you unpacked it a little, but if there was a more difficult ministry assignment, man, I I think it would kind of be tough to, to pin it down because that is a, a tough situation that Paul just 
sticks to and in, in the middle of and just guides this community through some really difficult things that I know I'm grateful that I haven't had to come across in my pastoral ministry with some of the things that he has to do. But there's two things that really stick out to me from the first Corinthians letter is um, how he talks about follow me as I follow Christ um, is his admonition to the to the people that he's writing to and how I know you also hit on in, in the book of being a clay pot at the end of the day um we're nothing great we're nothing and to write home about but really we're, we're just clay pots of a much more important and sacred message to the world of jesus so um yeah i wonder if you got any insights that that you those know you two, um, yeah those are two uh, important ideas of pastoral theology for for me for paul the uh, one of the most important chapters in the book about Paul and the Corinth is the world subversion. Paul Paul saw problems at Corinth that the Corinthians thought were their strengths, and he was trying to subvert those those what they thought were strengths to reveal to them that they were actually uh, weaknesses, and he wanted them to replace what they thought were strengths with what they thought were weaknesses, and the weaknesses were things that Paul thought were strengths. So yeah. Um, it's a it's a sort of a wrestling match between Paul and the Corinthians, and just exactly all all what they heard and what they did is is not uh, entirely clear. But that was a tough community for Paul, mm -hmm. and it, it exercised a lot of his uh, heartache uh, in uh, when he was um, living in Ephesus and trying to carry on some ministry across the Aegean in Corinth. Yeah, so. One of the things that you establish early on, and, and like you said, gets expressed in the other chapters of the book, is the idea of pastors as culture makers. So I guess now would be a great time for us to dive into some of that, of what you mean by that. Why is it that pastors are, are culture makers? And, and what does that look like to, uh, as we've said before, um, foster a culture of, of Christoformity in the church? Okay, this is this is a big idea. I've been working on this uh, ever since I started being asked by students at Northern and former students who would write me emails or letters or even call me. Uh, they would ask me, uh, why did Willow happen? Why did Harvest happen? I, I've had questions like, uh, how did the Roman Catholic Church get to where it is today mm -hmm. with some of the absolute horrendous a hideous cultural formations. Uh, and I've been asked about the Southern Baptist Church because of that Houston Chronicle article, yeah. which detailed so uh, hundreds of cases of sexual abuse uh, in churches against mostly girls and women, but some against boys and men. So I, I started thinking about this and talking about it and pondering it. And um, I, I would combine it. I, I would, um, describe it in, in this way, is it's connected to character and to culture. Um, and character uh, infuses culture. So I've, I've been talking a lot about culture lately, because I think if we start talking about character, it gets so individualistic that we lose the ecclesial or the church-orientedness of, of this vision. So the idea is that um, is that pastors and leaders, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid 
the language that is used, um, or I'm try trying to avoid a single set of terms, pastor and deacons, uh, as in Baptist churches, uh, I'm trying to use broad terms. So pastors, leaders, priests, uh, elders, deacons, uh, advisory councils, whatever people mm -hmm. want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just categorize this as the group of leaders in a church. Mm -hmm. They have interactions with the congregation, uh, various members in the church. And these interactions and relationships penetrate everything, but they're also, um, some of them are, are thin relationships. Some of them are pretty thick relationships. Mm -hmm. So all this diversity and change and difference has to be factored in. Uh, but the way I like to look at it is that the uh, leadership interacts with the congregation and the congregation interacts with the leadership in various ways, in relationships, in teachings, in uh, narratives that the church tells, the pastors, the leaders tell, in actions, uh, both by the congregation and by the leadership, uh, in policies that are formed, in structures that are created. All these things are interactive between congregations and leaders. Sometimes the leaders uh, are way behind or are in another co uh, connection, part of a denomination. But the result of all this interaction, in every church, a culture forms. And we have to become careful observers of our own culture. We may need outsiders to see what kind of culture our church is. Every church is a culture, and that culture forms no matter what denomination they're in uh, as a result of interactions, relationships between leaders and congregations. So let's just say um, at the most democratic form of church government, when everybody is in relationship with one another and interacting with one another, no matter how many people are involved, a culture forms. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, what kind of culture uh, is being formed? I believe that pastors have a calling. Uh, and this is something that I think Paul is trying to establish, especially with respect to Corinth. And we see this because he's at edge with them and uh, at loggerheads at time, is that he has to express these things is that a pastor's responsibility, a leader's responsibility, the elders, the deacons, the leadership council, the priests, whatever you want to call them, they have a responsibility to nurture a culture. Um, sometimes we use the word uh, that pastors or leaders are culture creators. I doubt that they create so much as that they nurture. Mm. Uh, if, if, a, if someone like you, Chaz and Chelsea, um, plant a church, yeah. you're much more of a of a culture creator than you would be just a nurturer. But after a while, once the culture starts being formed, and in a church planting, it can go through different phases yeah. where different dimensions of a culture will will appear. What what happens when there's twelve people is different than when there's a hundred people. Um, is that the, I think the pastor's responsibility primarily is to nurture a culture. And they have to nurture, um, they need to, to nurture a culture that is shaped by the biblical vision of a church. 
And I call that, in this book, Pastor Paul, I call that Christoformity. So I probably should say a little bit about that, but maybe you have questions on what I've said so far about nurturing a culture. Yeah, well, I definitely think it'll it, our next place to go is is unpacking that idea of Christoformity. But I would say I really appreciate and value the fact that um, you focus so much on culture, and <clears throat> you're gonna really like this quote, I think, because it comes from the owner of the Chicago Cubs. Um, when when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series and they were doing their big parade and you know all the people flooded into to Chicago. Um, I'll never forget what the owner said is he said that we focused on the culture of this organization because culture eats strategy for breakfast. And um, I just think this this talk and and um, conversation about culture is so valuable because we can so easily just focus on strategy and focus on a strategic plan and all of these different components um, to bring about what we want to do in an ends. But culture makes sure that we are evaluating our what we want to see grow and multiply is it healthy? Is it worthy of multiplication? Is it worthy of growth? Because um, if it's not of Christ, well, then uh, how how much value is it really going to bring um, if we want what, what God really wants in the world, if we want to foster his kingdom that he's given us the, the privilege and opportunity to be a part of? So, um, yeah, I guess I... I I don't necessarily have a question just as much as a encouragement that I'm grateful that you focus on that. And I, and ultimately I think when we focus on, on culture, um, those things, a strategy and, um, and of, uh, of objectives and, and plans come out in a much healthier way. Um, not that we totally just, uh, you know, abandon it, but, um, it's in place within the culture. So how do you like that quote in the Cubs there? Well, Oh, that's good. That's good to bring up the Cubs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think about the word strategy so yeah. much because I've used it in, in the context of something else, strategy and tactic yeah. uh, with Michael Deserto. But um, uh, I agree that culture, culture is, is the, uh, I think it was David Foster Wallace who said uh, that uh, it's the color of water. Mm. We swim in culture, yeah. in the church culture and so we become unaware yeah. of what it's really like and um, some churches have a triumphant culture some some churches have sort of an efficiency culture some churches have a service culture uh, some churches have a sort of an education culture mm-hmm. and, and we need to become alert to uh, the sorts of behaviors that we have that are fostering that culture so I, I believe that um, uh, what if that was Ricketts or if that was the CEO, um, Theo Epstein, I believe they're right, is that culture probably does eat strategy. And strategy is, is, uh, is only going to work if the culture uh, permits it. So, yeah. so if, you know what I mean? So if, if, you, don't, if you don't have the right culture, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to get a strategy working. And, and a lot of times, isn't it the case that uh, pastors have an idea, mm-hmm. a strategy, mm-hmm. but the culture is not ready for yeah. it or resistant to it. And it can be kind of irritating to the pastor. Uh, but, but if we back up and say, what kind of culture do we have? Do we have a culture that would actually support this idea 
And if we don't, the strategy is not going to work. And it might not be the strategy's problem. It might be the culture's problem. But there's something else. And that is cultures form over time. Yeah. They don't happen because we say, okay, we're going to have a culture of Christoformity. We're going to be a Christ-like people. Well, no, you don't choose your culture. Cultures form yeah. as a result of the interactions and relationships of congregations and leaders and people and policies. If we don't uh, allow that culture to form, or if we're not aware of what culture it is, uh, the strategies that we may have uh, just may fall blank. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you definitely hit the nail on the head with the frustration for many pastors that they have this idea, um, yet the the soil may not be at a place, the culture may not be at a place to be able to receive that and produce fruit. I know you love gardening and, you know, one of the things you could have the best plan in the world to produce the most amount of tomatoes any garden has ever seen. But unless you bring a dump dump truck loaded of compost and dirt and just like totally plant all of that, it takes time to develop the soil to be able to actually produce um, something that you're and sustain what your idea is. Um, and I, I think that's the right language to talk about it as nurturing and, and all of those things. So uh, yeah, I think it, it would be perfect now for us to, to jump in and for you to unpack some more of that idea of Christoformity as the, um, characteristic and the essence of what that culture is all about. So what do you mean by Christoformity and uh, what does that look like in church context? Well, uh, a lot of New Testament people, people who read some scholars, will know about the word cruciformity because for 20 years or more, Michael Gorman, a wonderful New Testament professor on the East Coast, has been talking about cruciformity as Paul's narrative spirituality and i i i would say i i don't know what parts of michael gorman's theory of cruciformity i disagree with i i like what he's doing i however uh picked up a term somewhere in jimmy dunn and i think it's in his theology of paul the apostle but i'm not certain of that because i i've looked a couple times for it and i haven't been able to find it but i think it's in jimmy dunn's paul um, I like the term Christoformity because it talks about, uh, it sort of baptizes what is said in Romans 8, 29, that God has planned for us to be conformed to the image of his son. So sort of a sonformity, and it is Christ who is the son, and we are being conformed into his image. That's the plan of God for all time for the kingdom of God, for each of us. So I like I like the idea that, that it's Christoformity. Furthermore, with Christoformity, uh, it's a person. Cruciformity is an event or the cross, and that represents the person. That's why I know Michael Gorman and I are very closely, uh, we're, we're pretty close on the same page here. But I also uh, uh, want to say, and Gorman does this in his work, is that we are being conformed to the life of Jesus. So let's call it the bioformity. We are being conformed to his teaching, the didacaformity. We are being conformed to his death, the cruciformity. We're being conformed to his resurrection, anastasiformity. And I guess we're being conformed eventually 
to his rule, the Basileia formity. So I want to summarize all of that in the term Christoformity, that the goal of a pastor uh, that is following in the line of Paul's vision for church life is that we want to nurture policies and relationships and narratives and actions that conform to Christ. So Christoformity shapes everything that Paul wants to be done. His problem with the Corinthians, who believed in eloquence, and we'll talk about that at some future date, was not that eloquence is bad, but that eloquence might detract from the significance of the cross, which is hardly eloquent. And Paul was also against uh, people having super, super talented, wealthy, upper-class, elite giftedness that other people couldn't appreciate. So Paul degraded his own status, mm-hmm. called himself parts of the scum of the mm-hmm. earth, uh, because he, did, he, he wanted everything to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if the, people were playing status games that could only apply to the 1%, or the 2%, Paul attacked it and assaulted it uh, through the lens of Christoformity. Yeah, I mean, he even turned down financial supporting by the Corinthian church for that very reason, <laughs> to, to, to guard yeah. against that. So yeah, that's right. that will be so great as we um, continue this series. This will be an ongoing conversation that Scott and I have on the um, different elements that he unpacks in Pastor Paul. And so uh, I want to really encourage you, if you haven't gotten the book already, uh, to get on Amazon or wherever you get your books from and grab a copy of this. And I would love for you to actually read along with Scott and I as we work through some of these issues. And in fact, I I would, Scott and I are going to have plenty to talk about, but we would love to be able to hear from you as you work through this in your own ministry context, to hear from any questions that you have, or um, or maybe you have a cool story about how this is unpacked and how God's working in this way. So if you've got any questions or any ideas, or you just want to let us know how the podcast is going, um, you can always reach me at C Robbins, that's C-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at seminary.edu. Um, send me your questions. Uh, let me know what you think. And um, and it will, we will do our best to um, try to include those as we continue on in this series. Um, but also, um, we're always grateful to have you, you join us. So before we go, Scott, um, do you have any closing thoughts to wrap up our, our first conversation on Pastor Paul and um, maybe sneak peeks to future conversations we're going to have? Yeah, again, I want to encourage pastors to think about their church's culture and to see themselves as not 100% responsible for what's going on. It's not their fault sometimes, and, and it's maybe not always their credit. Uh, this is a an interaction between leaders, pastors, and congregations that forms into a culture. And I would encourage pastors um to think about the culture that they have and to see how it compares to Paul's vision of Christoformity. And then I would uh, urge them to nudge where they can nudge, to prompt where they can prompt, and to ask God to give them wisdom to know what to do next to help their church move into Christoformity. 
Great. Well, thanks, Scott. And uh, thank you again for this resource for you pastors, for us pastors, I should say. And um, yeah. pastors, thank you for the work that you do. I mean, the the kingdom wouldn't be what it is without you. And so we value you, we respect you and appreciate um, all the work you and the leaders of the church are doing to nurture cultures of Christiformity in the church. So we hope this is a blessing and and, um, and is a service to you as you continue to do that, because honestly, the kingdom wouldn't be taking root the way it is without it. So um, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 